Well, good morning, everybody. What a delight to see you all here this morning. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous morning. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the lesson this morning. In fact, I'm excited about the lesson this morning. I, couldn't hardly, I could hardly wait for this Sunday morning. Just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, there should be regi- voter registration cards available in the atrium. So if you're not registered to vote, be sure to pick one of those cards up and have it in the proper place by, have it registered by October 11th. That's the deadline. So pick one up and fill it out if you're not registered already. Um, I don't have enough questions yet for the question and answer time, which we're going to have in several weeks. And if we don't get enough questions, we'll just have to postpone it, which is, which is fine. But uh, usually people appreciate that question and answer time. So please, if you would, turn in your questions. Is John Brennan here? John Brennan. Okay. See me afterwards, John, if you would, please. All right. The humor for the week. Uh, I read this in Paul Powell's little book on jokes. He says, I was at Ohio State University. Oh, by the way, I should say that Paul Powell was a prominent clergyman in the Southern Baptist Convention. As you know, hypothetically at least, the Southern Baptists are teetotalers, hypothetically. So here's what I read. I was at Ohio State University, and he told me about a minister who called on one of his parishioners. While he was there, the parishioner served him a drink that the minister liked very much. He said, that's delicious. What is that? The parishioner said, that's cherry wine. I make it myself. I'll give you a gallon of it if you'll thank me for it from the pulpit next Sunday morning. The preacher said, that's a deal. He took the gallon, and the next Sunday morning in the service, when he got to the announcements, he said, and I wish to thank Brother Watson for the lovely gift of fruit I received this week, and especially for the spirit in which it was given. I thought that was pretty good. It doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the best way to confront a lie is to tell the truth. Excuse me. <coughs> My goodness, I'm sorry, people. I caught it from Hillary. <laughs> the best way to confront a lie is to tell the truth. Truth triumphs over a falsehood every day. And the best way to confront an error in teaching is to tr- teach the correct teaching. The best way to confront false doctrine is to teach true doctrine. I'm told that the most counterfeited bill in the world is the United States $100 bill. You can tell the United States has been working on that. It's very difficult for it to counterfeit now, but they've gone through several editions of the $100 bill. And I'm also told that when a bank hires a teller, They don't have that teller study counterfeit bills. They have that teller study genuine bills. When they know the genuine, then they can tell the false. And then you can tell that basically from what we have in our lesson today. Look at point number one in your outline, Roman number one, which is 
Doctrinal, the Person and Work of Christ, Chapter 1. Actually, Chapter 1 to 2 or 3, but Chapter 1. When you look at Chapter 1, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. Who is he? And what he has done, he does not say a thing about the error until you come to point two, where you have a polemical section, where he's defending against human philosophy and also, of course, the Judaism as well. Now, since we're talking about false doctrine, I'd better mention very quickly what that false doctrine was, because that's going to come up in the lesson of the day. If you were with us in our first study, we referred to the Colossian heresy. And we concluded that the Colossian heresy had two heads. One was Judaism, where the Jews were trying to cause Gentiles to become Gentiles, Gentiles to become Jews, and put them under the law of Moses. We're going to see that in a, in a bit. We'll see that actually next Sunday. But the other was Gentile philosophy, Greek philosophy. And the philosophy that was in view was dualism. Dualism taught that matter was evil. The spiritual is what you were really after. And, of course, went back to Plato. What you really want is the spiritual world. Therefore, you have problems with your body. What do you do with your own body? That's going to come up, too, in a, in a lesson very soon. And you have a problem with what you do about the resurrection of Christ. And your own resurrection. You have a problem with that because if the material is evil, why do you want to have a resurrected body? And did Christ have a resurrected body? More than that, you have a real problem with the body of Christ while he was on earth. What to do with his physical body? If evil, if matter is evil, what about Christ's body? Now, they had a couple of answers, but one of them was Jesus was just an appearance. He didn't leave footprints in the sand. He was just an appearance. And you can see that in John 1.1. 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we heard, what our eyes have seen, and our hands have handled. You can tell immediately that John is dealing with that same false doctrine. And John is writing about 30 years after Paul wrote Colossians. But you can tell that the same doctrine is in view in Colossians. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, John says, if anybody, if anybody denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, he's not of God. You can tell he's fighting this concept of Jesus is just an appearance. So the heresy was two-headed, Judaism and Greek philosophy. Now, with that in view, we come to the second main point, the argument against human philosophy, and I should add as well, Judaism. Now we're down to capital letter B, the doctrine of Christ. He, he warns about the danger of deception. The doctrine of Christ, and we're down to number two, the peril of correct doctrine. We just touched on this last Sunday, so let's begin at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. See to it. It actually says, look out, watch. And it's present tense. Keep on watching out and keep on watching out and keep on watching out. You know why? You put down one falsehood and up will crop another. You put, you put down another one and up will come another. If you've ever kept a garden, you know exactly what I mean. You hoe out the weeds, 
And in two weeks, there's another crop of weeds. You hold those out, another two weeks, another crop of weeds. That's true of all heresy. You put one down and another will come up. Put that one down, up come another. Keep on watching out. Never lay back. Keep your eyes. Watch out that no one takes you captive, that no one makes you a prisoner. Now, in the Roman culture, that was very obvious. It is estimated that almost half of the population in the Roman Empire was comprised of slaves. Why? Because when the Roman army captivated a culture, they would take the people as captives. It was not unusual at all for a Roman to have a Greek captive who had more education and more culture than the Roman because they would take them as captives. Now look what he's saying. See to it that no false doctrine makes you a captive. That just filled with significance. It means that false doctrine makes people slaves. Why is that? Because outside of Christianity, you work, 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 slave, slave, slave. In order to win your salvation, you become a slave. Now, we become slaves voluntarily. But under false doctrine, you become a slave involuntarily. Let no one make you a captive through philosophy. Mm, What does that mean? This is the only time this word occurs in the whole New Testament. You have a very similar word, a word based on the same stem, in Acts 17. The word in Colossians 2 is philosophia. Unless well, he's to say it, it's philosophy. Philosophers are referred to in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is disputing with philosophers, Stoic, Epicurean philosophers. Now, Paul says, let no one take you captive through philosophy. Because of this statement, some people say you should not study philosophy at all. Leave the subject alone. Don't even broach the subject. Just leave it alone. Well, that won't wash. Paul knew philosophy. In other words, how could he dispute with the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17? More than that, he is very well acquainted with with this dualism as seen in 1 Corinthians 15. When he's refuting their doctrine, for instance, <laughs> with what kind of a body do they come? If you believe in the resurrection, materialism, <laughs> tell me about that resurrection body. And Paul answers that. You can tell he knew the philosophy. The ace card, pardon the worldly philosophy, the worldly expression, but the ace card is Titus 1 where Paul quotes from a very obscure philosopher from Crete. Paul knew philosophy. The problem is not knowing philosophy, not knowing, uh, n- not putting your trust in philosophy. That's the real problem. Um, what do you mean by philosophy? Well, S. Lewis Johnson wrote these words. And who has not heard the definition, philosophers are people who talk about something they don't understand and make you think it's your fault. And that is true. Or the more dignified one, philosophy is man's attempt to befuddle himself scientifically, which is also true. 
I heard an illustration of a philosopher looking for truth is like a blind man trying to capture a black cat. In a large auditorium as large as a football field, that's round, no corners. Every surface is painted black, the ceiling, the floor, the walls, and there's not a bit of light in that room. The odds of that blind man finding the cat in those circumstances is nil. You'll never find it. And so it is a philosopher will never find the truth. Now, I'm no philosopher at all. But in my reading, I've discovered, as I've read philosophers a bit, that each philosophy is set up, and then the next man comes and destroys that and sets up his. Then the next man set, destroys that and sets up his. is just a history of filled philosophies. In fact, if you put your trust in philosophy, you're going to end up being a nihilist, a skeptic. I remember seeing more than one student who took philosophy and put his trust in the philosophy. And he ended up being a bitter person. Didn't know what you could believe. In fact, ended up saying, you can't believe anything. How can you know truth? Because philosophy will never find the truth. You know what the text says here in the Greek? Follow me now in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through the philosophy. Now, that could be generic. But probably he's looking at the philosophy being taught at Colossae, namely dualism. Don't let anybody make you a captive through that false philosophy. Don't put your trust in that philosophy. Now look what he says, through philosophy and empty deceit. The one article goes with both philosophy and empty deceit. They're closely linked together. And this philosophy, he is saying, is just empty deceit. There's nothing there. And it's a lie. Don't don't fall for it. Now, let's move on. You'll notice you're going to have three according to's here. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, when you have according to, that means normal standard. Normal standard. So don't let anybody take you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men. Now, we who are Protestants rebel against that word tradition. We end up saying, All tradition is bad. Mm, Be careful. Be careful. We are in Colossians. The next book is 1 Thessalonians. The book I'm after is 2 Thessalonians. So if you will, quickly turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter, from us. Now drop down to chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the the tradition which you receive from us. Now there's nothing wrong with tradition as long as it goes back to the apostles. Nothing wrong with tradition as long as it's based on the scripture. 
The tradition that he's talking about here, traditions of men, is what he's after. And I can't think of a better better illustration than Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus says, "You, you, you, you ruin the word of God, the law of God, by your tradition. And he refers to a word, Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N, which is found only in Mark. He refers to Corban. Now, according to Corban, you had a living trust. You would take all of your possessions and dedicate it to God. You could use it yourself, but you could not give it away to anybody else. So here is your parent, and your parent has a need, and they come to you for some financial help, and you can't do it. No, it's Corbin's dedicated to God. I can't help you. And so Paul's, so the Lord says, you break the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. By the way, honor means more than respect. It includes money. We know that from, from 1 Timothy 5. Honor widows who are widows indeed and so on. You, you break the commandment of God by your traditions. He's talking about human traditions. And Paul says here, this whole doctrine of dualism is human tradition. It basically means to pass on, to pass on, to pass on. Correct tradition is seen in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things that you've heard from me commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's tradition, passing it down correctly. That's correct doctrine. But this is dualism, which goes back to Plato. Passed on, passed on, passed on. But it's human tradition. It's not from God. So it's not according. So it's according to human tradition. Secondly, let me get back here to, to to the book of Colossians. Secondly, it's according to the elementary principles of the world. Now that is hard. That's a very difficult passage to interpret. What do you mean, the basic principles of the world? Well, the word stoichia here is the idea of something that's lined up in a row. Then it came to mean A, B, C's, basic, fundamental truths, elementary truths. The best illustration I can think of this, where you don't have the word but you have the concept, is Hebrews 5.12. When for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that somebody teach you the A, B, C's of the oracles of God. The word is there, that's right. The stoichia, the ABCs, the elementary things. So they say, the elementary things of the world. And it's possible that that's what he's saying. In fact, you have the word, same word in chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, there you have it again, the elementary principles, the basic principles of the world. Our more recent scholars have come to the idea that it means elemental spirits of the world. Elemental spirits. I take it if you would translate it just elementary teachings, it would include that. You must understand that in the Greek culture of the Roman period, there was a great deal of belief in spirits behind heavenly bodies. Astrology. There's illustration after illustration after illustration of leaders and generals not making a decision without consulting astrologers. So these would be spiritual principles that are behind these things. 
And in a minute, well, in fact, let's take a look at it right now. At the end of verse 10, he is the head over all rule and authority, spiritual things. And you notice again in verse 15, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he must be having in view spiritual beings. So this is according to this whole idea taught by people that there are spiritual beings behind this world and they are operating in the world. Well, that's true. But you operate by submitting yourselves to those false spirits. We're going to find out later, he's going to talk about worshiping angels. He's talking about these false spirits. So it's according to the spiritual elements of the world, and then not according to Christ. That's it. That's it. It's contrary to who Christ is and what he's done. Now, what's he doing? He's setting the stage for the next verse. According to Christ, what do you mean? Well, verse 10, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, I'm going to take a lot of time on this verse. It is just full of significance. Let's start with the word deity. For in him dwells all the fullness of deity. Now, some of you don't take notes. I know that. Right now, I'd like to have all of you, everyone, otherwise you're going to miss the point. Take some notes at this point. I'm going to give you six Greek words, which will drive home what I'm after. So in very small print, because you don't have much space here, in very small print, write these letters. O-U-R-A-N-O-S. O-U-R-A-N-O-S. Then put an equal sign. It means heaven. Uranos in Greek is the word for heaven. Now write under that in small print. Put O-U-R-A-N-O-S. A-N-I-O-S equals heavenly. See the difference? One is heaven. And you put that little letter I, the smallest Greek letter. You put the iota in there, and it means heavenly. It means something like. Now let me give you, this is very theological, so think with me carefully. Right now under that, put H-O-M-O, homo. Then, O-U-S-I-A, homoousia. Homoousia means the same as, the same as. Now, under that, right, H-O-M-O-I, O-U-S-I-A, homoousia. Now, under that first one, homoousia, the first one, write the name Athanasius, and I'll spell that for you, A-T-H-A-N-A, A-T-H-A-N-A, S-I-U-S, Athanasius. Under Athanasius, write Arius, A-R-I-U-S. Now, these are two men who had a huge theological doctrine, debate. It was huge. It went for years. And it was over this word, homoousia, or homoousia. Homoousia means the same as. Homoousia means like. Athanasius taught that Jesus was God. Homoousia, Jesus is God. Homoousia means Jesus is like God. 
He has certain things that are like God, but he's not God. So that controversy, Athanasius versus Arius, went on for years until finally at the Council of Nicaea, they chose in favor of Athanasius. And today, folks, we would say anybody that follows the Arian doctrine is a heretic. We believe Jesus is God. Now, two more words. Write down T-H-E-O-T-E-S. T-H-E-O-T-E-S. And after it, write Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9. Then under Theotes, write T-H-E-I. T-E-S, T-H-E-I, I'll put T-H-E-I-O-T-E-S, T-H-E-I-O-T-E-S, Theotes, which means divine, not God, but divine. And write Romans one twenty, Romans one twenty. All right, with that in view, take a look at Colossians 2.9. For in him dwells all the fullness, capital letter D, deity. In him dwells all the fullness of God. Now, slip back to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invincible, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature. Do you see that? Divine nature. That's the second word. It doesn't say he's God. But when you look at creation, you can see two things. Number one, eternal power. You can't escape power in nature. Good night. You look at earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, hurricanes. Tremendous power. In our days, it's capital letters. When you learn nuclear fusion and nuclear fission, the nuclear bomb, ooh, power. And it's eternal power. When you look at nature, you see God's eternal power. T-A-I, which means think about it. When you look at nature, you say, oh, there's power here, but it had to have a start. Somebody had to wind this all up. And whoever that is, is eternal. When you look at nature, you can't come away from the idea, you can't help but come away from the idea that God has eternal power. And the second thing is divine nature. We don't know who that person is, but somebody that has a nature like God. We would put it this today, intelligent design. We don't know who that is, but we say when you look at nature, there's got to be intelligent design behind this. So you have divine nature. Now, Paul is arguing in Colossians 2.9 that in Christ was all the fullness of deity. He's God. Now let's go back again to Colossians. Colossians 2.9. For in him, now in Christ is a basic doctrine of Paul. I mean, it's fundamental. Some say it's this huge contribution to New Testament theology. In him. But we're talking about Christians being in Christ in that case. But here he's talking about Christ as a person. In Christ dwells. Now, isn't that interesting? In Christ dwells. Oh, I'm sorry. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity. I'm not to the verb too early. In Christ, all the fullness of deity. Now, there's a construction called tautology, which means 
you have words that you don't really need to use that are just added. Like, he really, really, really loves her. That's tautology. You say really, really, really extra words. When you have all the fullness. Well, good night. Fullness is everything. If something's full, you have all of it. And Paul is just describing all the fullness. Not one attribute is missing from Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells. Excellent translation. It has the idea of dwelling deep down. A couple of generations ago, our forefathers homesteaded properties. They'd come to Texas or whatever state it was, and the property was owned by the government. And they had restrictions that if you lived on that property for a certain amount of time and and did certain improvements and so on, then after a couple of years, that property would be yours. Those people settled there. They were settlers. It was home. They dwelled deep down on that property. That's what you have here. The fullness of deity, all the fullness, dwells. It's at home. Oh, did you notice? Present tense. He is not talking about past tense or future tense. He's saying right now, right now, all the fullness of God's deity is at home in Christ. Now, here's the kicker. Bodily. Bodily. What does that mean? That Christ right now has a body and all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. What's he doing? He is dealing with dualism. If matter is evil, what do you do with the body of Christ? Well, he had a body on earth, but now is resurrected and at the right hand of the Father sits Jesus in bodily form with all the fullness of deity in him. Every deity of every, every attribute of the Father, the Son has. Every attribute of the Holy Spirit, the Son has. He's fully God and it is at home in bodily form. You know what that means? Christ is localized. But he's also omnipresent. That's right. The same thing is true of the Father. Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, and that's talking about God the Father, saying to the Messiah, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, which means the Father has a right hand, and he's seated. That's quoted, of course, in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, that the Lord Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, meaning the Father is localized, and he is omnipresent. It's both. We can understand that, but that's true. I remember being just a novice at seminary and hearing Dr. John F. Welford saying, though we, go, though we go beyond creation's rim, the smallest atom contains the whole of him. And that's it. Though we go beyond creation's rim, the smallest atom contains the whole of him. God is localized and he's everywhere. Now, that has huge significance for us. Step down to verse 10. And in him you've been made complete. Now, in him 
is the idea of being in Christ. By the way, all the, all the, all the references here are to plurality. It doesn't mean that I by myself am in Christ. All of us together who believe in Christ, all of us together are in Christ. Just think of this. All of us together. This congregation of people who believe in the Lord Jesus, all who believe in the Lord Jesus, are in Christ. In him. Now notice this. Verse 10. In him you have been made complete. Now that's the same stem as fullness in verse 9. In him dwells all the fullness of deity. In him you've been made full, nothing lacking. In him you've been made full. Interestingly, um, a delightful little commentary by Herbert, uh, Herbert M. Carson in the Tyndale series said that, says it this way. I want you to notice the word. This is an extended quotation. I want you to notice the words spiritually, morally, and mentally. Here's what he says. The fall of man has led to a condition of incompleteness. Unregenerate man is spiritually incomplete, for he is out of touch with God. He is morally incomplete, for he lacks both the final standard of conduct, which is the will of God, and the dynamic, which is the indwelling of God's spirit. He is mentally incomplete, for sin has vitiated even his reasoning power. And he cannot understand spiritual truths. Hence, it is only through the miracle of regeneration in which we, through union with Christ, be, he partakes of the life of God that he reaches his completeness. He is spiritually, excuse me, it is only then that the, his human nature is filled, with, with, filled out with meaning. He is spiritually complete, for he is now reconciled to God in, in fellowship with his creator. He is morally complete, not in the sense of being perfect, but in that he now recognizes the final authority of the will of God and already experiences the energizing of God's spirit, which is a foretaste of that perfection which will accompany his glorification. He is mentally complete, not in the sense of having all knowledge, but inasmuch as his mind is now enlightened by the spirit of God, to discern spiritual truths to which formerly he was he was blind. So he's looking at it from the sense of spiritual, moral, and mental. But there is more to that. We're complete in fullness of life, just fullness of living. Some people are trying to find fullness of living in money. <laughs> I'm sure you've made the same observation. You talk about People who are very wealthy, how much do they want? A little bit more, a little bit more. The pursuit of money never satisfies. Or the pursuit of things, houses, lands, the pursuit of things is the same. You're never satisfied. You want more. Or the pursuit of fame, how much fame do you want? Or the pursuit of power, I'd love to be over people. You may be over 10 people. You want to be over 1,000. You're never satisfied. Or the pursuit of pleasure. Pleasure never satisfies. Peggy Lee made a song popular in 1969, which had been written by two men about seven years earlier. Obviously, these two men were very discouraged with life. The name of the song, of course, is Is That All There Is? 
you know it very well. Is that all there is? The chorus goes like this. Is that all there is? If that is all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. Now, when Peggy Lee rendered this, she spoke the words of the stanza and then sang the chorus. And it became a hit that was the greatest hit of that year, 1969. Let me read the words, the lyrics. I remember when I was a very little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out to the pavement. I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, is that, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? If, that all, if that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's, let's just keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. And when I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to a circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what. But when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. And then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We would take long walks by the river or just sit for hours gazing into each other's eyes. We were so very much in love. Then one day he went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment. Because I know just as well as I'm standing here and talking to you that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friend? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all there is. Now that's nihilism if that's all there is. But I'm here to tell you, there's more. And I'm speaking now to believers. There's nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with possessions. Nothing wrong with fame. Nothing wrong enjoying in life. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, to the rich people, Paul says, he's given us all things richly to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoyment. The point is, everything must be brought into connection with Christ. All your wealth, all your education, all your fame, whatever you have, must be centralized in Christ. Bring it under his dominion. And that's going to be a theme through the book. Bring all your life so that Christ is the hardcore center of your life. 
Then you'll find fullness. Then you'll experience fullness. You have it positionally, but you'll experience it in your life when Christ is the center of your life. I've been speaking to Christians, but it's possible that you've been making other things the center of your lives. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, you will never find satisfaction in life here and now. In fact, there's something missing, and that's your relationship with God. God created us so that we might know him and walk with him. And the provision for that was made in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth. And you'll notice there's a reference to the person and the work of Christ. Who is Christ? He's God and man welded together in one person. Nobody like him in the universe. He is unique. Jesus is God and man. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in bodily form. But more than that, or I should say as much as that, he has paid for our sins on the cross. All your sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. And God the Father says, I'm satisfied with the payment. Would you be satisfied with the payment? Would you accept Christ as your Savior? Or are you trying to save yourself? If you're trying to save yourself, you're lost. You'll never make it. Salvation is a gift given to anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior and welcomes that person into his life. Father God, we thank you for the fullness of deity that dwells in Christ. And positionally, we have been made full in him. And we pray, Father, that we may walk with him. And those of us who are your children may make Christ the hardcore center of our lives and find full satisfaction in just walking with Christ and having fellowship with him. But I pray also, Father, for those who are here who have never trusted in Christ. Convict them of the emptiness in their lives and cause them to see that they need to walk with you. And may they turn to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Today, October 2, 2016, I'm trusting you to save me. I welcome you into my life. I know you're alive, resurrected from the dead. And today I welcome you as my Savior into my life. Now, Father, watch over us this week. May we honor your great name. We pray that we may please you in all of our activities. We pray that our words may be acceptable, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions. May we please you. And we pray, Father, for those who trusted in Christ, that you give them the grace to tell others about that decision. We commit our ways to you with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.